In last week's episode, I presented a brief overview of how place has been represented in music throughout history. Towards the end, I had mentioned several recording techniques developed and refined by the members of the World Soundscape Project. This week's episode will dive deeper into those techniques. I'm Luke Helker, and you're listening to Ears to the Earth. was white as snow, and everywhere that Mary went, the lamb was sure to go. Not quite as enduring as what Neil Armstrong said as man first walked on the moon, but in 1877, these were the first words Thomas Edison spoke into his newly created phonograph. This device allowed someone to speak into a mouthpiece and have the vibrations of their voice become embedded onto cylinders coated in tinfoil. But when he heard his voice play back to him, He envisioned a number of practical uses, including letter writing and dictation, phonographic books to aid blind people, language preservation, and of course, the reproduction of music. But this isn't about Edison. This is about how the advancement of this technology has allowed us to document, admire, and preserve nature. It's also how we've been able to distort and reshape the world around us by using sound. Over the last century, tinfoil became wax, Cylinders became discs, wax became tape, discs became cassettes, tape became digital, cassettes became discs again, and nowadays everything seems to demand digital formats, while some of us try to maintain a grasp onto something tangible before it all disappears into the gray cloud in the sky. So, having said all that, the three techniques I'll discuss today are field recordings, sonification, and site-specific. And by techniques, I mean techniques in producing environmental compositions. A field recording, in the simplest definition, is simply a recording conducted outside. It does not have to take place in a field, nor do the captured sounds necessarily need to be produced by nature. While the act of going out into the field is simple enough, many sound artists and sound designers have turned the process of field recording into an art in its own right. Bernie Krauss, a sound engineer known for recording wildlife, has remarked that microphones, quote, don't have brains or eyes. They indiscriminately pick up everything within the scope of their design, end quote. This means that field recording requires some degree of predetermination in order for one to capture the sounds necessary for a particular musical intention. The scope of that intention can be quite broad, some choosing to manipulate or distort the sounds for the purpose of a composition. French sound artist Pierre Schaeffer developed a compositional technique known as musique concrète, or concrete music, which manipulates pre-recorded audio to construct entirely new compositions. What you're listening to right now is his Etude au Chemin de Fer, a piece solely comprised of different train sounds. Musique concrète is still practiced today, and other noteworthy composers who pioneered this technique include Edgard Varese, Karl-Heinz Stockhausen, and Daphne Oram, among many others. 
Another treatment of field recording includes treating them as instruments themselves. Familiar instances of this include the third movement of Ottorino Respighi's Pini di Roma, which feature field recordings of birds. or Alan Hovhannes's And God Created Great Whales, which features recordings of whales. But unlike Pini di Roma, which I think uses the birds to reinforce the scenery evoked by the music, Havanas treats the whales like vocalists, featuring them in between the symphonic motifs. The last example is soundscape composition which often preserves the recording as is, allowing them to sound like symphonies as R. Murray Schaefer has suggested. But these recordings can also help scientists monitor the health and well-being of a particular ecosystem. In his TED talk, Bernie Krause demonstrates some of the dramatic effects logging has on a particular ecosystem. His first recording was to gauge the activity of the region before logging, and then he returned several years later after logging had became more frequent. He discovered that what was once a vibrant chorus of different birds and animals soon became nearly silent. I'll put a link in the description of this episode so that you can watch it in full later. To me, field recording is most useful or most valuable when it highlights the sounds we often overlook or ignore completely. If and when you're able to find time to get out of your house, I encourage you to walk around your neighborhood and try to listen and see if you hear anything new or exciting. I know for me, during the first several months of quarantine, when automobile activity was at its lowest, the birds in my neighborhood gathered more frequently, waking me up every morning with their dawn chorus. The next process I'm going to dive into is called sonification, which takes something non-audible in nature and translates it into sound. A simple example of this would be an aeolian harp, a sound sculpture that amplifies wind as it passes through it. Other times, software is used to convert and synthesize the data into sound. Most of the time, sonification involves taking concrete scientific data and realizing it into some musical context. Andrea Poli's Heat and Heartbeat of the City 
presents the sonification of heat data in Central Park, New York during the summertime. It begins with pre-existing data from the 1990s, but also projects data of Central Park during the 2020s, 50s, and 80s. It's hard to fully grasp a lot of the sonification pieces from just the audio alone, so I'll add a lot of links to Andrew's work and others in the description of this episode. This technique offers a lot more flexibility. Because the sounds themselves are not predetermined, the composer has more agency in choosing which sounds to privilege in order to best articulate the data being realized. We'll see plenty more examples of this when we talk about Bertner and Adams even further. This last technique is a little tricky, because it too has the potential to be very flexible in its conception and its presentation. Site-specific compositions, as the name suggests, rely on a specific location to enhance or define the musical experience. However, unlike the previous techniques, these types of compositions do not necessarily need to be reinforced with electronics. In fact, if you were to go outside and walk around your garden, around the block, or down the shoreline, and allow yourself to concentrate on the sounds around you and listen deeply, you would in essence be performing a sound walk. These are not always intended to be considered compositions with a capital C, rather they are more often sonic exercises to encourage awareness and appreciation for one's own space. Russolo advocated for this in his Art of Noises, and the members of the World Soundscape Project conducted and recorded many of these to further encourage such awareness. One of the most famous examples of a sound walk is Hildegard Westerkamp's Kitts Beach Sound Walk, in which she walks along Kitts Beach in Vancouver and narrates what she sees and hears. I attempted to do something similar when I was hiking along the coastal trail that hugs the city of Anchorage. This is the Tony Knowles Coastal Trail. It travels along the northwest corner of Anchorage, bordering the Pacific Ocean. In addition to showcasing the place itself, some composers write pieces to be performed in a particular place to complement the environment. For example, R. Murray Schaefer wrote, Music for a Wilderness Lake, which is scored for 12 trombones placed around a lake. And in John Luther Adams's piece, Inuxuit, he only specifies that it be performed outside. Because many of the performances of this work take place in public parks, a performance of Inuxuit is often treated as a once-in-a-lifetime site-specific performance. Adding electronic reinforcement only adds to the number of possibilities for composers. Wild Energy by Anea Lockwood and Bob Bielecki is an outdoor exhibition that processes sounds outside the range of human hearing, such as bats, earthquakes, pressure waves from the sun, and amplifies them into a 50-minute loop within the range of the human ear. This exhibit is located in a garden featuring hammocks, inviting one to relax while indulging in the Earth's hidden sounds.
Lockwood has also recorded the sounds of famous rivers, including the Danube and the Hudson, which have been used as a means of preserving their respective history and how their presence has affected the history of the surrounding locales. The sound map of the Danube is a traveling exhibit, while the sound map of the Hudson River is part of a permanent installation in the Hudson River Museum in Yonkers, New York. Both have been preserved in CD recordings. It's been 143 years since Edison heard his voice echoing Mary Had a Little Lamb. And we've obviously come very far in expanding the possibilities of recording technology. I hope you learned something new today. There's obviously a lot of overlap with some of the topics and techniques discussed, but as I further provide context for these techniques and apply them to the music of Adams and Bertner and so on, I hope this will help clarify some of these differences. If you have any questions, comments, suggestions, or any other type of feedback, please feel free to reach out. Until next time, keep your ears to the earth.